We turn back again to Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. Luke 13, 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door and saying, Lord, open to us, and he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. Uh, Father, as we look at Jesus' words, Lord, I pray that you would help us understand something of the urgency that Christ knew that man doesn't know, doesn't see to the extent as we ought to. Lord, I pray that we would treasure these words which are more valuable than gold. I pray that you would do a mighty work this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're on part three of a sermon uh, series of sorts through uh, Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. I think this is the last sermon in this series. I never quite know. Um, and we've looked at the question that's asked in this text. Lord, will those be few who are saved? Will there only be a few that are saved? Jesus responds with a plea to strive, to violently strive to enter through the narrow door. And that striving we looked at is a call to repent, to turn from your sins and run to Christ. Today we're going to take the voyage, three different voyages into the future. Christ takes us forward into the future to get a glimpse of what is to come. But before we go into the future, let's go back some 27,227 days into history. That's 74 years 
and 59 days. It's August 1st, 1945. You're in Hiroshima, Japan. You walk outside and notice something odd on this particular day. The sky is filled with leaflets that are floating down. And they are everywhere. And you're taken back by the sight. It's almost beautiful as you see these pieces of paper softly coming down to earth. You walk over and pick one of the pieces of paper up. And you notice on one side of it, there's a picture of U.S. planes, the B-29, dropping bombs. And there's 33 cities listed on that particular side of the piece of paper you're looking at. And then as you grab that piece of paper and you turn it over, there's words that say, read this carefully as it may save your life or the life of a relative or friend. In the next few days, some or all of the cities named on the reverse side will be destroyed by American bombs. These cities contain military installations and workshops or factories which produce military goods. We are determined to destroy all of the tools of military clique which they are using to prolong this useless war. But unfortunately, bombs have no eyes. So in accordance with America's humanitarian policies, the American Air Force, which does not wish to injure innocent people, now gives you warning to evacuate the cities named and save your lives. America is not fighting the Japanese people, but is fighting the military clique which has enslaved the Japanese people. The peace which America will bring will free people from oppression of of the military clique and mean the emergence of a new and better Japan. You can restore peace by demanding a new, our new and good leaders who will end the war. We cannot promise that only these cities will be among those attacked, but some or all of them will be. So heed this warning and evacuate these cities immediately. We are in possession of the most destructive explosives ever devised by man. A single one of our newly developed atomic bombs is actually the equivalent in explosive power to what 2,000 of our giant B-29s can carry on a single mission. This awful fact is one for you to ponder as we solemnly assure you 
it is grimly accurate. How would you respond to that leaflet that fell out of the sky and into your hand? Five days later, about 220,000 people, mostly civilians, were killed as a result of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. The U.S. Army dropped one million leaflets five days before they dropped the bombs, warning people to save their lives. This morning, we're going to look at a leaflet of sorts that fell out of the sky, a leaflet, a message, a word that came in the flesh and is written down for our good, for our warning, for our safety, and for our salvation. Let's look at this text. Luke 13, verse 22. As he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying through Jerusalem, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He said to them, strive. Violently struggle and strive to enter through the narrow door. And then he voyages us into the future, lets us see what will happen, what will come. And he's speaking of the final judgment here when he says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside And to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you, I do not know where you come from. As we look ahead, as we get this picture that Christ gives us of the judgment day, the first thing we want to notice, that there is a master of the house. There is a master. Many people overlook this thought. In their minds, there's one master. In fact, we live in a culture that tells us the only master that matters is yourself. To submit to anything outside of yourself is foolishness. But Jesus speaks of a master of a house, and that master is Christ himself. The second thing we learn is that this narrow door that Christ was speaking of will be shut. It's not a door that's indefinitely open. Time for enrollment In this master's kingdom 
is limited. The period of grace will irrevocably end and the time of judgment will begin at a specific time. There is a master of the house. There's a narrow door which is Christ and that door will shut. In Genesis 6.3, God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. God will not strive with man forever. This last week, we got word that Laura's grandma was dying in Wisconsin. We were unsure of whether or not her hope was set in Christ. We quickly packed up our things Monday and headed to Wisconsin. When we got there, her grandma was not strong enough to talk. She could speak with her eyes and with her hand squeezes. We were able to read scripture to her and remind her of the hope that there is in Christ. And it was hard being in a room of family members who think it's silly that we would be, in one sense, pleading, calling, asking for someone to rest their hope in Christ when she was one of the nicest ladies you would ever meet, one of the most loving grandmas you would ever see. And the next morning, we went there. Every breath looked impossibly hard to get as her chest would heave into the air to grab a breath, and her eyes went and open. And this text was sitting in my mind. There was no response the second day. We were there. We stayed till about 12.30. At 1.30, she was gone. The opportunity for grace for Beth Amaker ended on Tuesday. God knows. God only knows who truly sets their life in Christ, who runs through that narrow door, who has their anchor set in heaven but the door shuts. It really does shut. And that is one of the main points Jesus is making. And this is what he's been saying. This is what Luke has been saying. This is what John the Baptist has been saying ever since the beginning of Luke. Way back in chapter 3, when 
the people are flooding out to him, the outwardly religious people who do not really love God are coming to John the Baptist for a baptism of repentance. Jesus says, you're, or John says, you're at the wrong place. There's no fruit of repentance. Why do you want this baptism? You don't want to turn. And then he says, don't even begin to tell me that you're children of Abraham. God can raise up children from these stones. And then he says, let me tell you people, the axe is already at the root of the tree. And those who are not producing the fruits of repentance will be cut down. The tree will topple. And then all throughout chapter 12 that we were just just looking at, we see the rich fool who's storing up treasure and that night his soul is taken from him. And then we look at those who Jesus tells to be ready, to be looking for the master, to have your hope set because he's going to come at an hour that you do not expect all of the sudden. And then in verse 54 of, of Luke, he talks about the hypocritical time-tellers. They know how to read the signs of the times when it's going to rain or when heat is coming, but they don't know what time it is spiritually. That the time for grace to be saved is right there. And then we saw in chapter 13, how a tower can fall and kill 18 people or how a terrorist can all of a sudden slaughter people. And Jesus says, don't think that those people were worse than you. Repent right now. The same fate could come to you. Jesus, why is he, why is he doing this? What is it about his character, the character of God, that he would send Christ down like a leaflet? Why did the Americans five days ahead of time? This doesn't look like good war strategy. Because you could get your weapons and your stuff out of there. Love drives a warning of impending destruction. Love does it. Imagine being Jesus, knowing what eternity is like. Seeing these people, you would warn and you would warn and you would say, the door's shutting. Don't imagine you have more time. The door will shut. In Hebrews 9.27, we're told, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's why he came the first time, will appear second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Came the first time to give his life for sinners. We're in this time of grace where you can run through that door. He's coming a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. And all you got to do is read Revelation or Second Thessalonians. Those who aren't eagerly waiting for him, when he comes the second time, he destroys anyone who does not who is not trusting in him, who has not run 
to the door. Turn with me for a moment to Psalm 2. This is a prophetic psalm pointing to, or a messianic psalm pointing to Christ. Here's what it says. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed, His his King, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision when He speaks to them in His wrath and terrifies them in His fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Another leaflet that comes out of the Word of God to man. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish away. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is not a new warning that Christ gives. The narrow door will be shut. And what will it be like for the majority? Because the question is, will only a few be saved? And Jesus says, let me give you the picture. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, this verse 25, you, he makes it personal. He says, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, but he's, He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. He says on that day, the first reaction is going to be surprise. Surprise. We got here and the door is shut. And they're pulling and they're calling and they're saying, surely there's a mistake. Surely something's wrong here. And the reason why they're surprised is they're remembering all their so-called good deeds they had in this world. And the majority of them in church with God's people listening to Jesus' words. He says, if you want to know what it's going to be like, imagine the crowds have been following Jesus. Many of them left their jobs and just keep following them. And what he's saying is, as many of of you are going to be surprised when 
although you thought you followed me, you're going to find out that just walking behind me and accepting my sayings does not equal salvation. Robert Stein says the mere fact of being physically in Jesus' presence or being acquainted with him is not sufficient for entrance into God's kingdom any more than church membership or participation in church is sufficient today. One must repent and believe. For Luke's readers, this serves as a warning that partaking in baptism in the Lord's Supper did not guarantee entrance into God's kingdom. Just because you're doing the right things and are in the right place does not necessarily mean that you have a personal relationship with Christ. That doesn't mean you're one who's eagerly waiting for Him, that has your hope anchored in Him. John MacArthur writes, clearly hell will be populated not only by irreligious rejectors of God, but also by those who were outwardly religious and reverently spoke of Him. People even used the reverent phrases and read the right people. The Pharisees were masters at fooling, fooling man, but not Jesus. In Luke 16, we read, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. There's no such thing as fooling God. And then he says, I don't know where you come from. He's saying, I don't have a relationship with you. In John 10, 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and they know me. I know who they are and they know me. He goes on to say in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They're these people who hear my words as my words. They see me as a master and they say, I want him. I want to follow him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. God knows, does he know about everybody? Of course he is. He's omniscient. But does he intimately know you? Do you know his words? Do you crave his words? When everyone left and only the disciples were there, he says, you, you two want to leave? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. You're our shepherd. We listen to your words. Over and over again, statements like this. Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. You don't need to turn there. But the five who were not ready, who didn't bring oil for their lamps. He says to them, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you neither know the day or hour. What it means to watch for Christ 
is the same thing as running through a narrow door, is the same thing as eagerly waiting for Him, is having your hope anchored in Him. Paul, talking to Timothy, warned of those who would pretend to be teachers and Christians. He said their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and uh, Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting uh, the faith of some. But then he says this, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. So what's he going to tell this church that's been being wavered by false teachers? The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the Lord depart from iniquity. He says, don't worry. The Lord knows who are His. And you'll know them too, the ones who are repenting. The ones who are turning from iniquity. It's another way of saying you'll know them by their fruits. John the Baptist knew that they weren't there for repentance, the crowds. And then Jesus says to this group of people, depart from me. There is not any more haunting words than those three words. Depart from me. And the reason why it's so terrible, the most terrible three words a person could ever hear is because of the personal pronoun, me. He's saying many on that day will hear depart from me. Which is the worst thing a soul created to be in relationship with God could ever hear. Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The whole world is going after joy. They're looking for fullness of joy. They're looking for pleasures evermore. And He says it's in His presence. And yet Jesus says, many on that day are going to hear, depart from Me. You don't get to spend eternity with me, your creator, the one who created all things, the one who has fullness of joy to give and pleasures forevermore. Similar thing in Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? These were religious teachers even. Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What terrible, terrible 
words as he gives us this voyage into the future. But listen to me. Listen. It was a voyage into the future. He brought us forward. And that's when he was saying, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we're not there yet. Which means Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And God says to you in Christ from Isaiah 55.1, Come, everyone who thirsts. It's just the opposite of depart. Come to me all who thirst and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That was Matthew. Isaiah's, come to me, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty as you look at the leaflet and see what's coming, and you get the picture of what's coming in the future are you saying i need that narrow door i need to run through it i need to strive to enter it i need to anchor my hope in him i need to wait for him eagerly having my hope set in him are you thirsty he says come by without price Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me here that your soul may live. And I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love, sure love for David. As sure as my promises to David are going to be fulfilled if you come to me, if you run to me, If you run to Christ, Christ says, I'll fill you. I'll satisfy you. I'll forgive you. John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, which actually means that if you believe in me, that the Holy Spirit, The Spirit of Christ will actually come live inside of you. Not only will you not hear, depart from me, but you'll get to experience life, yes, now in this fallen world, with the presence of Christ living inside of you and I. It was only a voyage into the future. And yes, we're still in the time of grace. But we don't know when our Tuesday comes. We don't know what day we walk out of our hut and it's not leaflets of paper floating down, but it's a nuclear bomb falling from the sky. Why does Jesus say, come to him? Because just two chapters earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, 
Here's what is said about this Christ. Surely, verse 4, Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of, of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And although... He had done no violence and there is no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Yes, he goes to that cross. But when he dies on that cross, he gets to see offspring. That's birth forth. And then he says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Here's what that means. That means that through Jesus' knowledge of your sin, he knows every one of them. Because he knows what everyone was, and when he went to that cross, he took everyone specifically to that cross that when he died, he not only can take your sins, but he can give you his righteousness. And then he ends this beautiful passage. Therefore, I will divide him, uh, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So when Jesus is saying, come to me, all who are thirsty, he has everything you need to never hear the words, depart from me. Because the only reason God would say depart from me was if you had sin in your account. That's the only reason why and if you lacked righteousness. So we looked at the judgment seat. Now let's voyage into the future and see a glimpse of hell quickly. After the judgment is over, we're in a different place, in that place. In that place. Where's that place? comes back to the personal pronoun, me. It's not with him. Remember a few months ago, we talked about what hell was? Relational separation from God and creational separation from God. 
you're separated from a relationship with God in hell and you're separated from anything good about the creation in hell. You see, ground is good. It's good to be steadied on something. Hell is a bottomless pit. There is no presence of God's goodness. Only His righteous wrath will be upon those in hell. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the kingdom of God. Here's what he's telling the crowds who are mainly made up of Jewish people. He's saying, you're going to be surprised. And that surprise is going to produce anger. And that anger is going to produce guilt. You realize what a terrible thing guilt is? People kill themselves over guilt. I just read an article yesterday of a country music singer and professional hunter, 53 years old, caught with sexual abuse charges against him with minors. Police went to arrest him, found him dead in his house. Why? Because the guilt was unbearable. The shame. Well, let me tell you something about hell. In hell, there's a crystallizing of your thoughts. You have an eternal body to clearly remember and think. One of the most terrifying things is you're left with your thoughts. You don't go insane. And because of that, there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves not there. To be able to see and know what it must be like to live with Jesus in His presence, in His kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth. And He says, you'll see you're not there. And worst of all, you Jews, you're going to see people coming from every direction. Who are they? Gentiles. And they're there with Abraham. And they're there with the prophets. And they thought they were getting in because of their pedigree. Because of the family they were born into. And fifthly, look at the voyage into the future to see the surprising reversal. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Many of the followers in front of Christ were convinced that they were the people of God. The Word of God was given to them first. They had every privilege to be expecting the Messiah, Christ fulfilled so many of the prophecies. And he says, although you were chosen by God first to receive the Word of God, it's going to be the Gentiles who are last that are first. And so Christ takes us 
on this loving voyage into the future. Christ, this teaching is like a leaflet fallen from the sky. The future has been foretold. You have been forewarned. And listen to me, the destruction that Jesus talks about is a trillion times worse than any nuclear bomb that could fall on you. A million times worse would be a soul separated that hears the words, depart from me. I don't know where you come from. I don't know who you are. You've been forewarned. Something worse than a nuclear bomb is coming for those who do not run through the narrow door. So the message in Christ's scripture here is simple. Turn and run to Him. Run to Him. Those words fell on deaf ears to the majority of the people that received this teaching. And it's my prayer that your love for Christ, if you're already a believer, we ought to be so thankful for the mercy of Christ that God has given us. And if you have family members who do not know, do not believe that it's unloving to pass the leaflet on. That is a lie from the pit of hell because no one will be saved apart from the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Father, I pray that we would not create a false reality as though these great things that Christ talked about and these terrible things Christ talked about are not really real. Lord, help us live in the reality that Christ is our master. Lord, let, let us run to you and cling to you. Father, when we sin, let us be broken and run to Christ, our Savior, the one who took our sin on himself. Let us rest and anchor our soul there. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.